You were born a hunter-gatherer. You were born a social animal, one that moves within the land and moves between bands in a world that was meant to be less measured, less exact. We were meant for lives with more meaning and less consequence, a life where connection and meaning are implicit, where animals have voices and trees have stories, a world where rivers flow unabated and water isn't a health hazard, a world without fences, a world without flags, a world without rulers and gods. It's our world, the world of primal anarchy. We are here to say that either the world burns or the cities do. We're here to say that abusers convince you that you have no choice. We're here to say that marketers convince you that you have their options. We're here to say that you are wild, that you can be free. We're here to say that there's a match in one end and bull cutters in the other. And we aren't here to say that the world is waiting. We are here to say that the world is fighting. We are here to say that their story only ends one way. And we're here to tell you that there are others. Primal Anarchy Podcast is a collection of rants, tirades, condemnations, readings, musings, explorations, response, interviews, and iterations hosted by Primal Anarchist writers Kevin and Natasha Tucker. Find us online at primalanarchy.org, all major podcast platforms, and the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 27 of the Primal Anarchy Podcast. Today is April 18th, 2021, and my name is Kevin Tucker. Um, I'm just giving a quick introduction here uh, to get this episode up, and I'm really excited about it. I do want to acknowledge from the start that we are on occupied Lenny Lenape and Susquehannock lands. Uh, there's been a lot going on since the last episode. It has been quite a while. We do apologize. It's just been hard over the last year and getting everything going. Uh, and we do have another episode we're going to be recording and putting out uh, immediately, if not pretty much alongside this one. But this is an interview with Cleveland Nolly of Indigenous Action Media. And also, he's had a number of projects. He was in a punk band called um, Blackfire quite a while ago. He's got a new band, uh, a new album coming out under a band called Appropriation, which is a little, a little more uh, punkish as well. It's pretty cool. And we are excited about that. But Clee's somebody who's been around for a long time. He's somebody I've known for a while. And uh, I always really respect what he's doing, really respect what Indigenous Action is doing, and uh, we really support it. They've got a great podcast. If you listen to our podcast, you should definitely listen to their podcast. They are also a member of the Channel Zero Podcast Network. Uh, but this interview is really important for us, uh, and uh, something that we're, we're really excited about is, uh, you know, this is the direction that we feel things need to be going in, especially with the last year and the 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 nature of everything that has gone on in the world and where it is at and the fact that the veneer of white supremacy has really washed away uh, and all the different kinds of things that have been going on. And that's, you know, that was true a year ago. It's true now. It's the same things keep happening. Uh, and we need to be doing more. We need to be doing better. And these are the kind of conversations that we feel truly, really push things in that direction. Uh, so I don't want to go on for too long here because this is a pretty long interview. Uh, I hope you listen to the whole thing. Hope you enjoy it. And again, like I said, uh, check out everything Indigenous Action is doing. Uh, they do some extremely important work. Uh, there's a few things of their writings and pamphlets that are mentioned in the discussion. Um, you know, please follow up. All the links for that stuff should be on Indigenous Action's webpage, uh, which is, I believe, in indigenousaction.org. 
All right. Um, well, without further ado, here is the interview. Hello, Clay. Hey, Clay. Yate, greetings. All right. If we're, uh, do you mind giving a little bit of an introduction for yourself? Tell people who you are and um, about some of the projects that you're working with. If you ever hang out with Dinet folks, we never mind introducing ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it can go on for some time. Wonderful. So my name is Klee Benali. Um, my, my father's side, I'm Torich Eatney, which is Bitterwater. My Nelly's side, um, there's which is the wandering people on my mother's side i'm russian polish which we sort of say or red coat i originally come from an area known as black mesa on the Dene or navajo nation and currently i reside here in flagstaff at the base of the coast or the holy san francisco peaks and um this is kind of a big thing you do a lot of like really awesome projects and stuff like that. And I know there's a lot going on right now. Uh, you might like giving like a bit of an overview. No, it's pretty open-ended. I'm taking you up on your offer to have a long introduction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, currently I'm working, I'll sort of like walk back from what I'm working on now. I'm working with the crew who are called Kinslana Mutual Aid. And Kinslana is the name for this place that is called Flagstaff. Um, which just means many houses. Uh, we started the project in two, in 2020, last year already, just about a year in March um, during the sort of initial wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, we just mobilized, looked at some of the other models and other mutual aid projects that were going on and extended some of the work that we were doing already out of Tullahoan Info Shop, which is where Kintana Mutual Aid has its sort of supply and processing center uh, and a bit of a hub for storage. Uh, and so we um, have been working on that for some time. I've been also uh, working with a group um, since 2001 called Indigenous Action, initially Indigenous Action Media, but we dropped the media. Um, and uh, I also work with a, d- a few different organizations like one called protect the peaks that's been focused for many years on the struggle to protect the holy san francisco peaks here in northern arizona from ski area expansion and the most controversial component of their activities which is snowmaking with 180 million gallons of treated sewage Mm. and so we've been organizing for years to protect this sacred lands from this extraordinarily um violent act of desecration um i work with a couple other organizations one called clean up the mines and one called Halno. we focus on um, addressing uranium issues particularly abandoned uranium mines and new proposed uranium mines that are threatening our region around the navajo nation there are over 523 abandoned uranium mines just with actually within the reservation boundaries and Throughout the region, there's about 2,000 abandoned uranium mines. There's never been a comprehensive human health study to address the impacts of these mines, and many of them are just completely left open right next to homes, residents, um, and still poisoning our, our waterways. And so I've been organizing to address that for some time with those groups. 
Um, but a lot of my focus is around indigenous action. We produce um, zines and commentary um, videos and critiques mainly just generate propaganda and also uh, organize direct actions um, mainly to uh, intervene in a range of different ways, either narratively or directly, physically, um, uh, to protect sacred lands uh, throughout the region. And um, also primarily focused on um, work with Talahoan Info Shop, which I helped to found in 2007 with the rowdy group of young Dinne and Hopi uh, youth who were part of a group called Youth of the Peaks at the time. And they were like a, a militant resistance of youth to the Snowball, uh, which is the ski area desecrating the Holy Mountain here, uh, to the Snowball desecration. So um, that info shop is still going strong in different ways. We've sort of adapted and shifted what we do. And today it's the home to Consent Mutual Aid. I also work with the, another group, which is mainly a network that's tied to Kintana Mutual Aid and Indigenous Action um, called Indigenous Mutual Aid. And so it's primarily just a network of a range of Indigenous Mutual Aid projects that also were um, stimulated to action in uh, March of last year uh, in response to the COVID-19 um, crisis. So yeah, it's a, it's a bit of what I, I trouble myself with these days. Um, I'm a musician, artist, uh, I guess a filmmaker and a traditional dancer. My father's a traditional medicine practitioner. So I was raised that way. And so a lot of the stuff that I focus on is driven by that. Um, and, uh, my family comes from an area on Black Mesa, just, uh, in the region, known as Big Mountain or, or near Big Mountain. A lot of my relatives were caught up in the so-called Navajo land dispute. I was actually born the year after um, this Congressional Act, PL 93-531, which is called the Relocation Act, was put into place. And so many of my relatives, my elders, matriarchs, um, they were part of the formulation of resistance to this mass scale um, geopolitical land grab to forcibly relocate more than 20,000 of our people and open up the area for encroached uh, or more uh, coal mining. Um, and so that's been an ongoing thing that I think has really shaped my way of working in this world and engaging uh, on different levels. So that's a bit of what I'm doing and a little bit of why, I guess. That's a beautiful introduction. Yeah, You're also an incredible writer. You're a beautiful writer. And I appreciate time, that. Yeah. Oh my God. Every time Kevin and I read something that you've written, we're just like, whew, like it's, it's the truth. It's the, you're the real deal. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a pedigree that comes from academia. So I think usually when I write, I write in spite of it. So maybe that's where that comes from. <laughs> uh, it, it, I love it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that anybody in academia was planning on, um, actually making change. So yeah, no, I, I, it's my little dig, my way. Oh, of oh definitely. I, I like you just being blunt about it. So, yeah. <laughs> cheers. Cheers. Coffee cheers. Cheers. Coffee, coffee cheers. Fireside chat. Coffee cheers. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to like fly past all that stuff without like just acknowledging it. I mean the the work with Indigenous Mutual Aid and that kind of mutual aid work that happened in the space or in. in really organized very quickly in terms of like corona coming on mm -hmm. and recognizing how 
at risk, predominantly indigenous communities have been and are um, in terms of highlighting everything about healthcare access and um, you know this, the way this entire system is worked uh, or, or set up intentionally. Um, like highlighted a lot of those elements. And I think that that response has uh, really been like a, a humbling thing to see and to see like how, how quickly these groups formed and the amount of work that's going on and um, just how to the wire a lot of it is. Um, and I know that like there's, there was a lot of attention coming up at first in some degrees. And I know some groups are struggling with just reminding people it's like the expenses are ongoing. It's like a constant thing. And especially going into winter, this is a, a huge thing, but it's like a, a really amazing, um, just like actual show of what mutual aid can look like and, and mutual aid responses. Uh, and I know that's something that's been going on with you and something that's a focus with a lot of your projects. Um, it's, it's impressive to see. And I know we'll probably come back to a number of those elements of it, but I, I don't want you to just like, run down a list and I don't want to diminish any of the other projects that you're involved in, which there are a ton of them. Uh, but I think that that's worth like just emphasizing as well, right off the bat. Yeah. I think it's great to, that there's a lot of visibility to these projects and it's interesting the way that a lot of the indigenous mutual aid projects specifically have sort of said, you know, okay, you call it mutual aid, but we've been doing this for a long time. A lot of projects just sort of naturally, um, were already doing this kind of support work. It just, there was just an interesting nexus of the sort of like the, the political concepts or ideas and application. And then the responses to the pandemic that helped orient people or articulate things a little bit more clearly, mm-hmm. which is great to see that sort of political connection, you know, and, and it, it's not necessarily that way for all the groups. Um, but uh, I think it's, there are a lot of groups that are very intentionally asserting that this is the way our communities function. Um, and we're just uh, continuing that, carrying that forward in a way um, that makes sense in response to this crisis. And so I, I think it's it's really great that there's a lot of visibility. I mean, especially in contrast to the fact that the Navajo Nation had a huge spotlight on it um, because at one point last year, we had the highest infection rate of COVID-19 in comparison to U.S. states. I mean, that's really extreme if we look at the population. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of folks, of course, there was this sort of the, the, um, the missionized charity relief efforts that were looking at that sort of cashing in on, on the, the sort of spotlight of victimhood, you know, and, and, um, reinforcing those narratives, which has just been um, part of the nonprofit legacy and overall white supremacist um, way condescending and patronizing practice of keeping our people down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of a legacy that I argue is connected to um, missions and forts that continues today um and uh, so you know in response to those narratives we've been breaking that down as well and asserting um the ways that we're you know bringing up our people and doing this autonomously and breaking down systems of dependency and how indigenous mutual aid is a radical response 
um, to the need for our communities to not be dependent upon these systems that have um, perpetuated um, the, the degradation of our health ways of being and made us more susceptible um, to this virus. You know, people were looking at the statistics and saying, oh yeah, Navajo Nation has 33% of the people who live there, which is about 250,000 people in an area the size of West Virginia or this, the, the country of Belgium and said, oh, 33% of these people who live there don't have access to running water, don't have access to electricity. 60% live under the, you know, the, the or live um, below the poverty level and so forth. And uh, in this area, that's this large, and with this population, it's, you know, there's only 13 grocery stores that people have access to. So it's considered a food desert, but we didn't know, we didn't have an idea of what, you know, food deserts, I guess, didn't exist um, before colonization because <laughs> we sustained ourselves. Right. And so all, all these concepts and all these ways that we're being told we are impoverished or we are told that we um, would basically thrive and we would not be disproportionately impacted by this virus if we just had corporate grocery stores on every corner. Um, right. <laughs> or, uh, you know, but without critically looking at the environmental factors, like we have... Um, massive, you know, two of the ma most largest coal-fired power plants in the entire so-called U.S., one of them the most significant contributor of carbon emissions um, right here in the, in the so-called Four Corners where we have a methane cloud hanging over our heads. It's the size of Delaware, the state of Delaware. Wow. So you want to talk about 90,000 or um, 30 to 90,000 fracking wells. Um, you want to talk about, um, again, the, the legacy of the uranium mines, why we don't have access to um, uh, clean, and healthy waterways because um, there are more than 22 wells closed by the EPA because of high levels of radioactive contamination due to the legacy of these uranium mines. That amounts to about 50, the access to 50,000 people um, who otherwise would have those resources. And so, you know, we have to look at all of that. And that doesn't even include the coal mining and the range of other ways that our communities have been targeted um, systematically by, as a resource colony. Um, and that's how this, you know, this reservation was established as a resource colony, a tribal government was established as a resource colony to access um, those materials underneath the land to benefit and maintain the machinery in, in um, metropolitan areas like Phoenix and um, cities like uh, Tucson and Las Vegas, LA and so forth. And so the geopolitics of this region has been very much a part of the condition for the environmental factors that have made our people susceptible to this virus. So we're we're part of our response the point i was getting at is is that that's part of what we're addressing and we're facing when we're organizing and mobilizing around mutual aid so hmm. i think there's like a lot of points to jaw there i mean i think that it's like natasha's really focused a lot i agree and i've been focusing as well i mean like really talking about the importance of narratives in terms of framing where we're coming from where we're going and how we're like how we're such in that situation and i mean obviously in that case it's like you know you can hear 
like if people are familiar with the missionary work and familiar with the NGO work and really wanted the NGOs are generally secular missionaries in the same regard, um, just as predatory. Uh, but like, I, I mean, it's, it's really important to focus on that, that aspect of that narrative and that aspect of like, you know, why there has to be this clarification about mutual aid versus charity, um, which is something that I know Indigenous Action, you've made a, a, a large point of really focusing on. Um, but also like in really understanding the bigger picture about the nature of civilization, the nature of colonialism, the nature of industrialism, like all these different elements come to create this narrative of saying like, you know, like the Navajo situation is the way it is because this is just how it is and totally disregarding literally everything else that's happening about civilization to get us in that position. Um, and it, it kind of, you know, a crisis like this and a moment like this, it really feels like it really does draw back a lot on like the, the issues with the terms. And um, you mentioned like mutual aid is, is what you do. And in this case, it's just applying this term. And I think that one of the things we're talking about, when we're talking about narratives. One of the things that we focus on is Natasha and I, um, is, is by looking at these bigger pictures, by trying to like take a step back and see where these issues are and talking about the importance of destroying the Western tradition, destroying the Western tradition and anarchy and, you know, eliminating this notion that uh, anarchy is a European idea and it didn't exist prior to, you know, going down William Godwin, going down all these different lines. And there's so much being attributed to Kropotkin for observing mutual aid, um, predominantly as a naturalist, and like almost granting some degree of um, of credit for inventing this idea, but really, uh, I think what it draws on and what it, what it needs to be drawing or what it should be drawing on, but gets muddled in a lot of these kind of conversations and even in the projects, is like this 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 completely torn apart and reconstructed view of the world that is implicit within Western ideals and Western traditions and Western approaches of the world is like a completely dissected thing. And so like it makes it possible even by having to clarify a mutual aid project, like you're talking about an isolated thing. And it makes me wonder if like, you know, it also doesn't feed into that same kind of like, um, implicit white supremacy, implicit Westernism, implicit like Western chauvinism, and even in radical discussions, or particularly about in radical discussions about just continuing to see the world in this this really disjointed way as though mutual aid is something that would be independent of everything else about the nature of how a functioning society works or in the nature of colonialism and resource extraction uh, and all that. Um, so I'm just, I don't know. I mean, do you feel like you, you, I don't know if there's a way that I know that you've talked about before, like really talking about having um, an indigenous anarchistic perspective or having your own approach and having your own way of doing the world in the way that, that is like a communal and the way that is, you know, as a society is passed on. Um, but trying to come at these, or not even trying, but coming at all these different angles or like this coming to and talking to other anarchists or talking to whoever um, from the perspective of having it like a world that's not torn apart and not in pieces. Um, I didn't think about it. So, 
Well, I, I can Are respond to that. Part of, yeah. what, what were you going to say? Because I, um, I can respond to parts of what you were bringing up. It was just talking points. <laughs> well, dang it, I should have brought my, uh, my little folder with all my talking points. Take, take it away, talking points. Um, yeah, right. um, I feel like uh, my first response to your what you're talking about and it's just regarding the world's torn apart um, in Hajinet or our creation history we've gone through many worlds before um, as Diné people. Um, we have a whole history that, um, you know, we could elaborate and, and, and talk about and many other indigenous peoples have their histories with worlds that have come before and have met certain ends because of things that have happened due to imbalances, disharmony, um, as part of that narrative and part of who we become through our understandings of the teachings that have helped the people and non-human beings come through those worlds. Um, this is something that to me, when people start talking about, like even, even the, 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 the jargon, you know, the slogan, another world is possible um, and all that, you know, it's like, yes, we, we, we know that on some levels, but, in our histories, it hasn't been our intention to bring another world. It has been um, a consequence of our imbalance. You know, mm -hmm. so many talk about, so many people talk about how global warming is the greatest crisis facing humanity. Well, it's a consequence of a war against Mother Earth. And, you know, the, the spiritual practitioners that I talk about with global warming, they say it's, it's because of our disharmony. If you don't understand it in those terms, then we're not going to get anywhere. You're just going to try to do crisis management. You're looking for categories that things fit into so you can manage it um, based upon, you know, your social order, which gets into the sort of points you're making about mutual aid um, as being a category for activism, you know, a, a, a political sort of function. And we see that, you know, and I think, you know, thankfully there have been people sort of rejecting that tendency and, you know, Dean Spade, has written a book that is pretty much clearly lays that out. It's a little, it's a little deficient in parts, and I'm I'm looking forward at some point to writing a um, a review of it. But I think it's a good starting point um, for a lot of people, and even Kropotkin's Mutual Aid. Um, that book is, it's it's great to like um, get in the mind of a uh, a nature geek who likes to just watch beetles you know uh, and is fascinated with things um and and in in some ways for the time had some humility enough to recognize that um and understood the charge to challenge this sort of social darwinism um so i think it's it's useful but um you know i i'm i'm personally not interested in and i have no no affinity with anarchist identity um really uh, anarchist ideas you know, in, in practical aspects that are translatable and relatable um, to the way that I um, see things make sense in this world, the way that I was raised in my teachings. There are a lot of uh, affinities, there's compatibilities, things are easily translatable. And so 
to me, that's what I'm most interested in. I think that there are a lot of folks who want to missionize charity and allyship in this intersection during the this pandemic is very easy for them to cash in on, you know, mm-hmm. socially and economically. Um, and that's even our own people are doing the same thing. They're just sort of like going through the motions that are sort of set forward by these patterns of social management um, to just um, perpetuate these same institutions or systems um, of social order, which, you know, is unhealthy and, and not our way. So, you know, I, I, th- I think, you know, we're not, and, I, and I, this gets into some of the writings that um, I've helped to put out recently with Indigenous Action is, is that we're not afraid of ruins. Um, when we talk about worlds torn apart, it's not this world being torn apart, it's our experience and these order, these ways that we've tried to arrange um, ourselves um, that have been incongruent with um, our original teachings and the, and the way of, of being that is nature um, that sometimes we set ourselves aside from and we forget, but, um, you know, we've been, you know, growing up in the Southwest, you can't ignore the ruins that have existed, either the ones that have been torn, turned into tourist traps and destinations. And our people are, you know, just out there selling our, you know, handmade crafts and whatnot to survive. Um, but these runes are part of that story and they're part of a powerful story of shift, change, prophecy, and renewal. But it's, you know, and, and at some point, I think in this discussion, we'll probably get into this. It's part of maybe the contrast of this disharmony that we're facing today is that um, sort of doomsday death cult um, of, uh, you know, the current, social order and its total apocalyptic urge that is linear. Um, Its logical conclusion is apocalyptic because of its uh, linear um, proposals, its proposition um, from beginning, middle, and end. Whereas when we look at the runes here, we look at what's around us, we see a cycle. We see something that has come before. It's life cycle and comes around again and we understand the teachings in that and so when we talk about worlds being torn apart that's sort of what i think about you know a lot of people are are sort of reactionarily scared to that so they cling cling to whatever they can some sense of normalcy is like right the idea that we hear a lot in people talking about this pandemic they want to manage things to the point where they get back to normal (laughs) um but i think we're in in space and when we start indicting civilization See, no, nothing about this has been normal. This is precipitated, this crisis precipitated because of this disharmony, because the way we fucked up with Mother Earth, with nature, um, with each other to the point where we're suffering these consequences. So if we don't understand that on those terms, then we're not going to learn those lessons which are necessary. And we look at these ruins and they have taught us those lessons. This isn't the first pandemic we faced before the, or the first virus we faced before as indigenous people. Um, we have our, our medicines, our healing ways, our ceremonies. A lot of people have lost them because they've been decimated by colonizers. But, you know, here for Diné folks, we live within our six holy mountains and we maintain our spiritual connections and our prayers and that's what informs us. That's what we base our actions and reflect on. So 
you know, I, I, I am an, a, uh, I identify as an indigenous anarchist, but I do that only as, as a matter of convenience to cut through liberal bullshit because it helps to like shut down certain conversations and proposals <laughs> uh, and assert that, you know, because a lot of folks, I mean, and this goes back in the last like 20 plus 30 years that I've been organizing where you get an indigenous person, you know, uh, in a meeting and most folks are just like, okay, well, we have the person that cares about the environment. That's it. It's like, okay, <laughs> it's a lot more complicated than your essentialized bullshit and um, white supremacist fucking um, approaches to organizing with our communities because we're not all the fucking same. Um, but that comes down to like, you know, indigenous folks who, you know, sort of are welcoming that uh, that uh, uh, the, the assigned seating on the left um, as well when ultimately to me it's just I just want to sort of shut down certain elements of those conversations by saying here no I'm, I'm not a liberal <laughs> I don't give a shit about your politics this is the affinity that I maintain um, but when it really comes down to it um, I would I would rather assert that I'm a Diné anarchist and I never put anarcho-indigenous or anarcho-Diné um, but it's just as a position. Um, and ultimately, I'd probably, if we really talked about this, I'd probably be more of a Danette autonomist than anything. Mm. Um, but it's more or less just to sort of cut through bullshit and get to more direct parts of the conversation of how we're going to work together, what we see as the problems and what we're going to do about them. I don't yeah. know if that's where you're going with the conversation. But, well, I'm um, glad you went in that direction because we, I was, that was actually something I wanted to ask you about is how, what your affinity is with the term anarchist and, and your feelings around that. Cause it is something that Kevin and I talk about quite a bit. And at one point, I think last year I was just like, I think we should just like abandon the term Kevin. Like it's not, I don't know that it's useful at this stage and you know, Kevin, and I'm glad that he did was, was really firm in saying, no, I really think it's still useful. There is something that it is describing that is important um, in terms of uh, resistance, basically. Um, so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you went in that direction. I was, I was hoping we would get to there. But also, I mean, like, not just in terms of uh, resistance, in terms of defensiveness, but in terms of really distinguishing between anarchy and anarchism and like an anarchistic world or anarchistic society versus like an anarchist society, which would be, you know, something that hasn't existed, which is a self-described anarchistic thing. And anybody who knows a lot of anarchists knows that that would probably be a boring society with a lot of meetings and not a lot of fun. But um, <laughs> like the anarchistic societies, like it's one of those things where I, it's, I, I use it the same way. I do think it's a shortcut. I think it's a way of, it should be a way of putting up a wall um, with the entire political spectrum. Um, I just had a conversation yesterday, I think with somebody who was like, well, I use leftists as a shortcut. And it's like, why? Like, if we're not breaking, like if we're not addressing these narratives along the way, if we're not drawing distinctions at every step to try and pull back from this narrative of like, well, anarchism is a political affiliation. And then this is my view on like, you know, this environmental issue or this ecological issue and like the social justice issues. It's like, we got to get rid of all that. And mm -hmm. I think that that's, that is where I was going with that. I, I'm, I hesitate to call it a question, but yes, the, that what I was trying to get at with all that and what I think is really important with moving forward with these kinds of discussions and also as we'll get to um, 
trying to figure out like how to get out of the rut that like the post-election rut of seeing the momentum that's been building and then seeing how much of it died off um in terms of trying to say like we can't keep doing what's been happening and i know like particularly with like the green anarchist world and things like that and with the anarchist world there's a lot of people sticking to their guns and feeling like the anarchist theory or anarchist principles as laid out by whoever and wherever are more important than just like what the real goals of these things should be. And if you're an anarchist, it should mean you're fighting for anarchy, not that you have allegiance to, you know, some dead white guy, which a lot of it really is. So it's I mean, not a political party. It's not a political party and it should be intent in, in really trying to undo this Western tradition that seeks to divide the world and classify it and try to deal with like ecology on all these things, on these levels and like, you know, create openings where you know, you're talking about uh, indigenous people being granted some kind of like mystical ecological awareness. And it's just like, well, that's just because some new age crossed lines for you and the left was just fine with it, but it's not accurate reflection of reality and a lot more complicated. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I think that's important moving forward and returning to coming from the perspective of like, this perspective of like saying where where have things gone wrong that the anarchist theory in and of itself has taken over the conversation where it should just be like what is the understanding that should inform action inform movement inform forward momentum and yeah and it's i think it's an it's an interesting question that we've been asking ourselves and we i mean um other Indigenous folks who identify as anarchists. Uh, we, a couple of years ago now, we had a indigenous anarchist gathering, uh, convergence at Talahoan here in occupied Flagstaff, Kinsana. Um, and this was part of the conversations there, um, which is really great. It was really exciting. Um, and part of, you know, the, the, the heart of the conversation is, is this useful? Is this you know, is anything about these politics at all useful for mm -hmm. us? Why does it make sense to orient ourselves in this way when we have much more interesting languages that we use to relate to each other rather than to subject ourselves? Because this was a tension that came up during the convergence um, with this notion of leftist unity. Because at that point, when we start subjecting ourselves to that sort of idea of just becoming part of that um, that mass, um, we start talking about points of unity and a range of other things that you know um, potentially al align ourselves just or definitely align ourselves with that overall political framework, which to me is still reinforcing a, a colonial. Um, proposition and so uh, it's interesting to explore um and i and i appreciate like the anti-politics analysis um on different levels um but i also find usefulness in certain categories just to make things clear to cut through bullshit but huh. I, I i started writing a piece a while back um called against an indigenous anarchist theory and i don't know if i'm going to ever publish it it's more or less maybe like a personal like the the closest thing to a personal manifesto i think i could probably come up with and maybe i'll i'll publish parts of it um but it and it's it's just sort of a contrast to like obviously practical um uh experiential um 
existential expression and work and moving. But um, I, th I think like there's a lot of people once they, they sort of concretize concepts and ideas, um, they want to celebrate that and, and, and sort of make something just of that moment. And that's why I, I don't like a lot of academics, I think. Um, these ideas become proprietary on some levels. They become a, a position where you stick a flag and um, that idea that, you know, um, sort of dynamic is something that has always been colonial, um, I think. Um, I'm not interested in decolonizing anarchism. I think, you know, anybody who usually says, oh, let's decolonize anarchism, let's decolonize this, I'm usually like, you know what you're proposing, right? You you know that like mm -hmm. these ideas and understandings are sort of like an overall contradiction that, you know, is just gonna, it's like a hamster wheel or something. And I, I'm not interested in those conversations or, you know, proposals. Um, but I, I will say, you, you know, like, and I, I think this might be important for your listeners um, just to continue a bit of like orientation in relation to my politics. And maybe this is useful for this part of the conversation. Um, is that uh, the, the matriarchs in Zifijin or Black Mesa who are part of the ongoing resistance to forced relocation really have deeply shaped you know, my approach and understanding of the, the dominant social order and its politics. Um, you know, I, I have a strong affinity with anarchism, but not anarchist identity, as I mentioned. Um, and it's not a position that you know, for me, it's not about like what white anarchism wasn't doing for me, you know, um, it's more about um, the propositions of mutual aid, direct action, voluntary association um, are familiar with um, uh, and, and translatable um, uh, through its genealogy or, or though in, in this, I guess I should be clear. It's just like though um, anarchism's genealogy um, is nothing I really desire to be tethered to. Um, I further um, offer that uh, this position of indigenous anarchism, I guess, uh, is just that no law can be above nature. Um, and it's the most, I, th I think, sort of simple way of communicating what indigenous anarchism is and should be. Um, and I don't know how much there needs to be built out around that, um, aside from just understanding what our orientations for our original teachings are in relation to that and what the existing, you know, um, problems that we're facing and how that could be then reconciled as potential solutions to address those problems. Um, you know, and, and I, and I, and I want to contrast this in something that we've talked about before, and I don't want to take the conversation this direction too prematurely, but hopefully we can get deeper into it. Is, is that like, this is in contrast to like, you know, this sort of left fascination with the proletarian, proletarianization of our life ways. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, cause I'm not fascinated with Marx. There's a lot of indigenous folks that are, you know, and there's a lot of young, young, young folks who are, you know, fascinated with Marx, Hegel, you know, Engels, Lenin and Mao <laughs> most disturbingly, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, this sort of, you know, science of materialist dialectics, um, which is a reaction to industrialism and the proposals of capitalism. Um, you know, it's to me a, a spiritual void 
of dead Eurocentric industrial fantasies that I just completely reject um, and inherently authoritarian, which is in deep contrast to like the traditional cultural formations of uh, Diné folks. Um, and so, yeah, just wanted to throw that out there as far as like part of this orientation, because I think it's important to identify um, to help get a sense of how we relate to each other, um, you know, and, and gets into this sort of proposal that we made a while back of with accomplices, not allies, as to whether or not there is a we, <laughs> what that means, and what it looks like to potentially work together or not. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's, I think, I think that might almost be the most valid discussion right now. Like as we're going into this new year, right? And we've just come out of this, we've all just as collectively on the globe have come out of this really strange time it's like what what does that look like what what does we mean is there potential for collaboration that will like take all of these different aspects right so like environmentalism and this like beautiful piece of and very important piece of indigenous resistance and then this work to like unsettle in within the colonizer like colonizer world like what what is that collaboration what does that collaboration look like is is that a thing is that a thing that can happen is that a thing that's important because i think more than anything right now with so much going on it's like where where are we turning our attentions to right like what does that look like what is that what is what is the core piece um that maybe is missing or that needs to be identified or um like where where do we turn our attention yeah. i yeah I, oh. okay good no after you please um i mean i do think that's an important question i think that like for the discussion that ideally working towards here is like um more about how avoiding some of these pitfalls like the things that like our generation already went through in terms of talking about resistance talking about organization a lot of the momentum that had been going on um late 90s early 2000s through the mid 2000s um the parts of the discussion that got left out in the current phase right now is like the new leftists are very very much like read marks and just like this religious kind of super dogmatic hyper dogmatic meme like hyper anchored um bullshit really this like perspective that's been going around a lot in this direction is going forward and i think it's really going to stunt any forward momentum or stunt the kind of momentum that's already being built and it's being built outside of like the radical traditions um and it, it just needs to be addressed and i think the allegiance to an anarchistic identity um, I think it's more important to contextualize that anarchist identity and we can talk about anarchist resistance and there's you know a good video going around um, that talks about the, the white supremacist roots of the Western tradition of anarchism and communism, socialism, and you know really knocking down a lot of the stuff about people just going at this thing like we need to read Marx. It's like freaking Communist Manifesto was written 30 years before Custer was killed. Like there was much more interesting things actually happening in the world to fight colonialism at the time than what this dude was talking about and a lot of questions are surrounding that and um and hang-ups about the frameworks and i mean you mentioned dialectical materialism i hate philosophy i'm tired of theory um but talking about narratives it's like yeah dialectic is the most uh 
reductive tool you could possibly have and looking for ways forward it's like a retrospective way of eliminating history down to a couple variables instead of seeing the complexity of a system in general but we go on about that but i think it's just really important to be able to say it's like okay there's issues with this with these trajectories and you could talk about it if you feel like an anarchist identity is the thing that speaks to you like at least contextualize where these things are coming from and the whole era of proletarianization and you mentioned Kropotkin for me the entire lineage of like historical anarchism outside of um, assassinations and things like that really the only thing that's interesting to me was like the first third of mutual aid and uh, yeah I mean it was really interesting from an ecological perspective to see this was a contemporary of Darwin and he proposed this as an alternative to Darwinism and I think that's fascinating but the way that Kropotkin um, applied all that to the world was like well he was a Russian aristocrat in a nation that hadn't even started really industrializing and the industrialization took place under communism and socialism so it's like he wasn't prepared for all that stuff like the applications he was going to take were rapidly vastly different than than what people reading those books 120 years later would be looking at them as but i think it's like contextualizing it and being ready to say like being beholden to those traditions and those roots is just as bad as any other like political spectrum ideology and if we're going to get past it i think that that needs to be addressed and needs to be understood as a thing that can be context in this larger lineage of resistance but not feeling like we need to be beholden to theories of proletarianization that existed in a time where anarchists where red anarchists were a viable threat to the industrial order in terms of how they were going to change the hands of it it's like well, we know everything about industrialism. Like, all those anarchists died before the first broadcast was ever heard. So, like, there's a context and a time and place for those things. But I think, the, I think the context really has to be, like, the ecological piece. Like, anarchism yeah. without the ecological piece of, like, being connected to, um, like, what's happening on the planet right now <clears throat> is, like, I mean, in all due respect to the history of anarchism, but going forward, I, I, it has no place. I, it has no place without the ecological. Um, no, and it shouldn't be controversial. Part, to say, I feel. Industrialism. I'd hope that that's a given, but I yeah. would hope it was a given. Yeah, I'm not trying to salvage that. That's for sure. Yeah, we just put out an image uh, with indigenous action with the picture of Roberta Blacco, who's one of my grandmothers, who's a matriarch in the resistance who forced relocation up in Big Mountain, uh, that just says, uh, stop believing in authority and start believing in our ancestors, mm. just as an indigenous anarchist, you know, assertion, um, because so many folks, yeah, they want to um, find their place in the historical lineage of these politics that are not of us, and whose perhaps time and place and usefulness has come and gone but mm. they're really interested in recycling this shit um i'm not interested in the you know exploring the dead thoughts of european folks or how they filtered out into you know other brown folks you know throughout the world for their resistance movements you know i think certain things need to be composted so there are um opportunities for for more interesting nutrients in the soil and new life 
um, what's useful, what's not useful. You know, those kinds of political traditions are trapped in those political legacies, which we, our ancestors exist outside of. <laughs> so, you know, it's just this part of the proposition, some indigenous anarchists that I am, um, really uh, relate to um, like exploring this idea of unknowability um, of unmapping our existence politically spatially and even spiritually from their world it's not that we don't exist and it's exists that we exist on our terms and we assert that um, and you know it's a sense of dual power but you know conceive of the idea of dual spiritual power <laughs> Um, you know, these are important conversations. Um, you know, I think there are practical conversations too, like, you know, getting back to the mutual aid discussion, um, if we're to really have true solidarity and not charity on stolen lands, you know, our assertion is just that we must establish reciprocal terms that have a deep understanding of these legacies, what colonial violence is the context and what the, the impacts have been and our responsibilities to undoing um, those problems are, um, you know, for us, this isn't just about redistributing, you know, a project of redistributing resources because anybody can fucking do that. <laughs> you know, it's like the red cross kind of shit, you know, um, providing relief and redistributing resources. Yeah. You know, to me, it's about radical redistribution of power to restore our life ways, heal our communities and the land. Uh, and that is deeply tied to non-human beings in, in the spiritual. Um, but this is, this is like the uncomfortable part of the conversation where we, you know, start talking to folks, especially of these political traditions, and they have no um, interesting interest in having these conversations on that level and the spiritual or understanding things on those terms. Um, but that's part of who we are. We don't have a dichotomy between spirit and nature for our understandings and teachings as Diné folks. Um, and so to sort of try to strip that away, that's part of that act of violence. And, but that's like a precursor, you know, it's, it's a precondition to have these conversations for certain people. Yeah. I think that that's, I mean, there's like, I, I want to point out too, like the indigenous action writings have been amazing and that, that the wording I can see is very intentional and like you guys use your terms really well. And like this reciprocal terminology idea too, or just, I don't know if you would call it an idea, but a thing, habit. Um, I mean, I think that that's like a really powerful aspect. And I think that, you know, as you mentioned with having the Indigenous Anarchist Conference there, um, I don't know if it was the, the write-up that came up afterwards or a reaction to it later was saying like, there is no Indigenous anarchism, there's Indigenous anarchists or Indigenous anarchisms. Um, and, you know, I'm wary especially coming from like the anti-sit perspective coming from the green anarchist world like there are a lot of issues that happen with people like really kind of um not doing the work of actually trying to undo these habits and doing these thoughts and doing these traditions in any kind of realistic way and they'll have the reaction of saying it's like well if you have your traditions you're talking about your ancestors like plenty of Europeans being like, well, then I need to go back through my ancestors. And it's like, you know, like, don't shit yourself into thinking you can exist in a world where colonialism isn't also the reality for being myself, like a European, mutt, like, put, put that on a mug. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll find a way. That'd be a good one. 
Um, but like being like an Eastern European mother, it's like I'm fully prepared to say it. it's like, yeah, my ancestors were fucking assholes. There's not a tradition within that. It's not that you can't go back far enough and say it, but like the liberatory aspect of it isn't trying to integrate or mimic what you know, say like an an indigenous anarchistic perspective could be, which is like going back through your ancestors and finding that identity, but trying to um, you know go through and just understanding the colonized, the colonizing, civilizing, domesticated visions of the world in which everything is is dead and there is no sacred and there is no anything, but also not feeling like um, the thing that I see a lot of people looking for when there is a discussion about indigenous anarchists. I've seen a lot of people being like, where do I go to, to like pick up this thing? Like, where do I like to approach it as like an entity or an identity that can be mocked or taken up or reiterated as a soul identity or as a soul way of conveying this kind of relationship with the world. And like, yeah, within, within ancient traditions, there's been particularly within rewilding traditions, there's been a lot of gnarly bastardizations of that kind of like unthinking, um commodification of worldviews or of perspectives or relationships with the world uh and i think it's really good i think it was really good to see and to hear like this discussion and as you're talking about putting out should you put out this writing i think it would be good i mean i think it would be good to see that and i think it needs to be heard more because um there are people out there who are saying like i'm looking for the indigenous anarchist perspective on this and as we know with the left, if you look hard enough, somebody will be willing to present it. And like, it'll be just another way of bastardizing this entire spectrum of existence and trying to distill it into like a talking point that a leftist publisher is going to approve of or could. I get a sense of what you're alluding to, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think it's great if there's more folks that are willing to engage because they, um, assume then the range of expectations that come along with that kind of position. Um, like they're like mutual aid is only co-optable to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and it's interesting that we live in a time right now where Antifa you know, anti-fascist action organizers had their day, you know, had their moment in the spotlight. Um, and so too with mutual aid now and like the range of different, um, uh, you know, sort of expressions um, of anti-authoritarian organizing. Um, and I think that uh, there's only so much that can be co-opted. It's like land back right now. It's like a hashtag for indigenous organizers. I mean, there's like, right now I've, I'm seeing like, you know, coming up um, to uh, <laughs> that Valentine's Day, you know, this like corporate, you know, sort of hallmark holiday Um, I'm seeing like, you know, candy hearts designed with land back and it, you know, it's this interesting propaganda on one level. I can appreciate like the, the the fun, you know, the spirit of the trickster there maybe, but you know, websites that are landback.org and an organization, you know, calling themselves the Indian collective with a CEO that is not at all a collective, which is extraordinarily misleading. Mm. which is a, a, a multi-million dollar organization that recently received $10 million from Jeff Bezos from Amazon, you know, and they are, you know, putting out there what the terms for land back are and their proposals, um, trying to like, uh, 
sort of um, corner of the market, I guess, of this this brand, this hashtag. And, and we've talked about this in the Indigenous Action podcast, especially with the Land Back actually episode and, you know, some of our critiques of Idle No More and the range of other sort of like, you know, popular movements which are exciting and they're exhilarating and they're powerful opportunities to like move things forward to bring you know extend extend the circle bring new people in um and so forth but i i think there's only so much you can uh, the point i'm getting to is there's only so much that even you know groups like the indian collective or some of these other groups can co-opt out of that hashtag land back because at the end of the day it's you know it comes down to do we have land back or not? You know, are we right. talking about this economically, politically, socially? <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, it's an ex- existential question that we have to address. We have an answer or not. That's it. Um, and so I look forward to agitating that. I mean, it's primarily where I come from is, is a, a bit of a provocateur and agitate and, you know, challenging, you know, things with the indigenous action stuff so if more people more and more people identify as anarchists i think it's exciting it's just a question it's like what do we mean by that where 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 are we going do we do we agree on these things or not it's just like um but it's it's a challenge i mean i i i I take a position but i'm not going to plant flags (laughs) i I, i'm very selective with where and how i label myself on these levels i think it's important um, but one of the points I wanted to get into aside from just, you know, going over this, because I, I think these conversations have happened a lot and they go in cycles with like the radical left um, and especially anarchisms because there's so many adjectives. Um, but I, the, one of the points I wanted to get into was just like how settler society is grappling with how to understand and respond to this crisis. It's, it's this sort of vulnerable position. It's very, very much, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety, settler anxiety the fragility you know coming to terms with its vulnerabilities i think is important um but for fully for that process to fully occur i think they have to come to terms with how their ways and understandings of the world is linear um and that how that timeline is actually coming to an end you know you're talking about like you know and i think this is a question that a lot of folks um especially in radical terms um radical spaces and um you know, in, in the anti-civ or wherever they, they think about, it's like, well, you're talking about going back to your ancestry, your traditions, you can't go back. Even our own people say this. Um, and, uh, you know, sure, you have the history of problematic um, you know, traditions um, and, and so forth. But um, I think sometimes we overcomplicate things in those perspectives and we forget at how certain things need to end. And there are larger cycles in these arcs um, and that's why I like bringing up these runes. It's like there are certain ancestors that don't exist and their ways of thinking about and doing things don't exist anymore because of those experiences. And they left those runes as part of those markers of, and, and maybe a part harsh cautionary tale because we have those teachings as to what went wrong, <laughs> maybe what we shouldn't do again and what ways we can better figure out how to work together um, or against um, and move forward. And I think that that's, those are much more interesting conversations mm-hmm. um, to have. Like, otherwise we end up with projects like awakening the horse people or all these, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I think anarcho primitivism had its growing pains uh, through understanding it's, um, it's 
fuckery, you know, within that, as far as propositions that really erased, you know, indigenous folks or, you know, were super um, appropriative uh, and problematic on a range of different levels as well. And just sort of impose themselves just sort of like, you know, the, especially with the, the language, you know, the articulation, the spirit of it, just being another sort of like um, extension of, you know, this sort of manifesting of, of destinies. <laughs> There's, yeah, I mean, and I think that we, we talked about this before. Um, and I mean, I do appreciate like, by all means, like there's there's critiques you had on one of the of the podcast talking about land acknowledgments and things like that, and um, calling out Eric Bruno's green anarchists, anti civ people in general for for saying it's like you know um, you can't bypass the indigenous relationship with the land in trying to have a relationship with the land, and I mean, yeah, I mean anarcho primitivism went away, and um, I I don't identify with it. Um, I haven't for some time and it's it's taken on uh in a lot of ways like straight up fascist overtones but like yeah, the awakening of the horse people and stuff like that was it's kind of what i was getting at about people being like well if you're talking about your ancestors i'm going to talk about mine and it's like well they were assholes and conquerors and colonizers we don't need to start with that rock that's not the that's not the one you can understand the history like it's the same thing as understanding the, the relationship of the indigenous people to the land like you can't bypass the history just because you want to have a vibe or because you want to have an experience or have a feeling it's like the narratives need to air towards complexity and understanding how all these things relate and interrelate and work through each other and nothing that's happening on this planet nothing that's happening in this land uh is isolated the way that we want to pretend it is so like that history runs through that, that reality runs through that, that the past and the future all run through the same currents. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's vital. Um, so, I mean, I think that, you know, well, I was going to say, we've touched on the idea of like theory here a lot during this conversation, but I really think, I mean, I really see that the way forward, like anytime, especially in colonizer, coming from colonizer culture, is like anytime theory exists without being connected to something um, in the physical or even with that spiritual physical connection, like I think it just gets to be really, it's really becomes very disconnected. Like it, it almost is just like, you might as well, you might as well just make up words and say them. Like there is nothing that it is rooted in, right? So, I mean, for me, I feel like any of this theory that we're talking about, whether it is these, you know, these branches of anarchism or anything like this or anything that we're talking about, it's like we have to pull it out of the, we have to pull it out of the theory now and we have to find a way to root it in the physical, which I mean, for me, that means like, like in the community, in these ways of, um, of uh, growing mutual aid and that kind of thing, but also like in the actual physical land itself, right? So like, how do you pull theory like out of the air and, and put it into practice? I think we like, we have to actually like do physical actions uh in the communities and within the earth like with the planet like in the earth like hands in the earth um and then i think there's a way forward there but um um you know you know what i'm saying yeah i mean i think that the this the, everything we've been talking about so far to me is the precursor for 
how do we deal with it? How do we go forward with the fact that like the momentum that was built last throughout the last year with all these mutual aid networks dealing with the with the pandemic and dealing with this like massively largely black led resistance that you know resulted in uh, historic things happening like seeing like we're how, how do we reconcile the fact that like the third precinct burn um, was it like six seven months ago now and that momentum just getting tanked by electoral politics and the way that the the leftists and all this shit have kind of come in and swarmed and uh, maligned and sidelined. A lot of the action that has happened is happening and is continuing to happen and really owned it. And I think that there's like, you know, this is, it's been a heavy buildup, I think in, in ways in this conversation to getting back to this, like this question of like, well, what do we do that, so much was happening and so much was going on all these like awesome things were happening frankly in the midst of horrible times um and not not getting stuck in this trap of seeing so much of it being torn away and owned by careerists at the risk of being i guess perceived as uh, being terribly reductive i want to go back to just what you were saying about theory um you know, in practice and getting into the land with our hands. Um, and mainly it's just like, I think it's important to have these conversations, but when you start talking about that imagery and these analysis, it's like, let's, and this is what we were getting into with the land back discussion. It's like, how are we asking the land first? You know, what are the conditions hmm. for, for that? Um, and I think like, I want, I, I just sort of want to like tie this into an analysis cause I don't want to let that statement go mm -hmm. um, regarding accomplices, not allies and regarding some of this other, these other interventions that we put out with indigenous action uh, in that um, we haven't had a chance to sit down and get to know each other and have even the conditions for consent to be opened Um and to me, that's part of the issue. It's just that incorporates when we're talking from an indigenous perspective, the consent of the land. And so I just, just wanted to acknowledge that, that that's not just like, you know, it's something that we should brush past because there's a lot of weight. Um, Absolutely. Propositions. Yeah. And, and, Absolutely. And, I, and I think it's important to like identify like how people have become comfortable in relying on institutions that have commodified thought that have turned it into a process of certification for valid and legitimacy validity and legitimacy of thinking um, in this world and how we ascribe and assign so much power to that um, and then you know so that's the theory component and part of why i reject it so much is because of that sort of proprietary ship from academia uh, mm -hmm. primarily um, in those institutions that then it seeks to continue to maintain. Um, but also like, I, I think that the practical component to me is, is where like I'm most interested in focusing in when we're talking about you know, how do we reconcile, how do we resolve these issues? You know, like, like the simple question of like, you know, you're bringing up the powerful George Floyd, um, you know, black revolts, um, you know, in response to the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others with Black Lives 
matters movement and you know part of our challenge with as indigenous organizers in our region at least and and I saw this throughout um, the social media verse uh, was like well, how do we address anti-blackness and build solidarity within you know our movements and um, our to address anti-blackness in our community specifically um, and you know find a good way of working together in solidarity um, you know through that rather than just posturing and you know, a lot of us were just saying, well, well, let's stop what we're doing and have these conversations and build these relationships if we haven't already addressed the ways that our communities have mistreated like Afro-Indigenous folks and, you know, um, have these hard conversations and, and do the sort of like spiritual maintenance, if you will, and tend to these wounds um, to have like, you know, a, a, a place and create that space where we then, you know, set intention together. Um, and, and we don't do that enough. And I think that that's the point I'm sort of getting, getting to in a lot of this work is just that, um, you know, unless we're creating those spaces and, and um, honoring um, the intentions that go into them and bringing from that point those responsibilities into the action, the way we work in this world, the way we act in this world, what we do in this world, um, then we're going to perpetuate these um, the vicious cycles where we're going. And I don't even like to call it a vicious cycle because it's a vicious end. <laughs> it's a vicious terminal point. Um, and certain terms need to end. Certain pr practices and processes need to end. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in tending to the cycles um, and thinking about what that means, but also tending to um, disharmony on some levels to make sure that those things that are unhealthy meet it, its end. That's part of the healing process. There are certain um, malignancies, <laughs> certain malignant, you know, um, things that are harming us that if we tend to it just consumes itself um, or sometimes we let it consume itself you know because at some point we recognize it'll just consume its own fuel and reach its end but yeah there's a lot of interventions and i think that that's that's a lot of what we're sort of um excited about when um the uh, the anonymous piece rethinking the apocalypse the anti futurist man indigenous anti-futurist manifesto was brought to our attention to publish with indigenous action um because there was an interesting sort of um uh you know voice that i think resonated and um just complemented a lot of where we're at with anxieties and and pain and suffering and you know interesting calls to heal um and what that might look like beyond just, you know, empty liberal words that um, want to contain and maintain a way of being in social order. Mm -hmm. And just one more point regarding um, the um, the uprisings, like because because I think what what you're sort of getting at is is that well this moment has the oxygen has been taken out of some of that fire from this movement momentum, but you know, I guess my perspective is that the conditions before that I didn't see coming in the midst of this 
pandemic, the fact that there would be such a powerful, you know, momentous um, uprising, um, I, I didn't see coming. And so I, I can't guess that those conditions are gone. <laughs> right. I think that there's a spirit there that many people, I mean, because one thing I, I think is concerning is, is how many people were fed into um, the, the carceral state. And, mm -hmm. um, but thankfully there's a tendency towards organizing anti-repression committees and, you know, making sure that there's some support. Um, but I think that there's a, um, there's an interesting possibility, you know, I like to think of radicalism, you know, it's certainly there's like the, the ways to define it, like that it gets to the root cause or it's not about reform. It's about like, you know, abolishing, you know, you use a range of different terms, but I also like to think of radicalism as the politics of possibility. Um, you know, what is possible beyond our current state. And I think that that we've sort of like, um, you reach certain watermarks and you, they're there, then those markers are there and can't go back. You know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not the kind of, you know, um, I'm not a historical or anti-historical necessarily. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I'm not going to say like, oh, it's like, you know, the 1960s or 68, you know, and shit like that. You know, I think it's much more interesting. I think it's, we trap ourselves sometimes in, in um, uh, chronologies when we try to map history like that sometimes. So I don't, I don't know, you know, personally, but I think the potential for more shit to pop off is exciting in there. Yeah, I feel that same way. I don't think, I don't really think the wind is out of the sails. My concern, okay, like permanently. Yeah, my concern is not that it's out of the sails. I think that like what we know about civilization, what we know about uh, the way these things work, is like these kind of situations are going to continue to present themselves at a more rapid rate, and like nothing that's mm -hmm. happening is, I mean, like nothing is happening right now that's going to prevent any one of these things from going on. In fact, like the police state is going to get more more solidified. I mean, my yes, concern is really, yeah, my concern with saying like this brief window we have to have this conversation like it's important because the reasons why we have to have this conversation is because that momentum was immense a powerful amazing i mean like seeing all these fucking statues get torn down and everything like that like that's that was fucking and i also just want to address because i don't think we've even talked about it on this podcast like people being like that's oh, a symbolic gesture it's like it's, it's not symbolic the goal is to tear down the statue the statue is a concrete reification of a narrative like it's meant to like oppress it's a it is infrastructure like the story matters in this case um and i mean it was that's insanely powerful i guess that i think that like this moment like we we've seen the wind get taken out of the sails of a particular moment and i don't think that that's any indication that it's gone but i think that um the people who are newer to this or the things that were happening or the things that became permissible because uh, Trump was such a disorganized fascist. I mean, he was, he's a, a narcissist above and beyond anything else. Like he's just re like reactionary, um, gutted a lot of the traditional institutions of the government that had been used for repression. And even though he could brag on TV about having an anti-fascist murdered by the state um, and absolutely celebrating the police state, they hadn't, reorganize and re and use the institutions in the way that a careerist like joe biden will and the kind of repression that we're about to see is is something i don't think anybody's prepared for and because 
so much control was offset to social media. Mm. I think people got this air of permissibility about being able to just say anything in a lot of cases. And of course, that's not universally true. And you could talk about Lauren Reed and it would be good to mention them, uh, them and uh, that kind of case. And while there are examples of this kind of extreme repression being used unequivocally, uh, the systemic repression that we did see before and has been used before is the kind of force that's going to come out very, very quickly. And as we know, like, uh, we can talk about it. I, don't, I know we don't really want to go into detail about it, but like people having the audacity to feel incredulous about uh, this capitalist or the capital uprising or the insurgency and stuff like that. Like none of that's surprising. And, and the indigenous action response to that and talking about like the need to not be sitting here getting bound up and talking about re- equivalencies and just feeling like, well, this is, there's unfairness in how they're being treated versus we're being treated. It's like, okay, what that really says is the entire conversation about whiteness that should have happened as a result of all the things that happened last summer uh, didn't happen. And it got sidelined for a lot of people into this ridiculous political bullshit. But having these conversations and preparing for the fact that when that inevitably strikes again, and it could be literally any moment, it could be before this even gets put on the internet, um, being prepared to know about how we're going to get through the kind of very organized repression that's going to come back through this careerist, like Obama, everything. Like, and the gaslighting that happens when you get somebody like Biden who was in office during the Keystone or during Standing Rock, you know, the gaslighting is going to happen when he finally cancels the, the plan or supposedly uh, cancels the border wall construction in favor of hyper-technical uh, technological tools uh, you know like we're we're gonna see the ground shift in in terms of what discussions can have very quickly yeah I, I guess my response well one just to you know talk about Lauren Reed as you brought him up um, Lauren is a 26 year old Diné um, person from uh, page uh, Arizona sort of bordered so-called border town north part of a reservation here and um, he was arrested by the FBI and charged with federal crimes that relate to private messages he had on Facebook uh, and it was infiltrated by the local page police department and it was during you know I think July last year during the George Floyd uprisings and basically was just making bombastic comments that um, could, you know, be taken as jokes, you know, or potentially literally. And that's where the um, FBI came in and he's been held in detention for, I think, over 10 months now, pretrial detention, um, just for making comments that, um, you know, he wasn't, he had no plans on going through, like, burning down a courthouse. Um, but yeah so I, I think like you know it's important to talk about security culture and this current political environment i mean i guess one comment that i have is just like and i think this is really important in relation to like maybe like i don't know if it's short-term memory or like the fact that like you know certain you know movements in the left 
you know, casually discard their elders. You know, we don't have good movement memory. <laughs> the intergenerational transmission of knowledge sometimes gets um, left out. But, you know, this isn't like it happened a long time ago. But the green scares, you know, should be very instructive, you know, and informative regarding like state repression. I think folks should should really study the the Earth Liberation Front, Animal Liberation Front, their strategies and tactics, and what brought them down here, at least in the U.S. context, and how they were, you know, treated with terrorism enhancements. I mean, the Animal, you know, Enterprise Terrorism Act, and like the range of other um, ways that the state, you know, uh, took extreme measures um, for surveillance and, and infiltration um, to undermine systematically that movement. Um, I think is important. So, so some of like what we're seeing, perhaps that could be studied as a microcosm into like what's going on. And and the same with Standing Rock. I mean, Standing Rock faced extreme infiltration. You know, private security forces employed by a you know by Dakota Access Pipeline and state forces um, infiltrated, disrupted, surveilled, used social media in many of the same ways and undermined to extreme levels with the results of, you know, long-term imprisonment and in many cases we could say death, you know. So I think, you know, I, I don't want to say, oh, this is nothing new because that's irresponsible, but making sure that we are learning the lessons we should learn. And I think in, in many ways, and this is sort of what we brought up in another podcast with Indigenous Action, this is like we need to learn from certain failures, <laughs> you know, and make sure that we're adjusting our strategies and tactics um, mm -hmm. to respond in smart ways. You know, it's not that everything has to be strategic. It's like we know how the state operates. Um, and so we need to respond and adjust accordingly. Um, and that to me uh, is, if we're not doing that and analyzing shit in real time uh, on the level that we need to, then focusing that we're unprepared, you know, to me is just really frustrating to hear because like, you know, I, I hear a lot of that and it's just like back in March, like the writing was on the wall for certain things where things were going with the pandemic and ammo started flying off the shelves, mm -hmm. you know, guns were like being sold at in incredible rates that, you know, um, uh, you know, have, have sort of broken a lot of records. Um, and, and you look at the way that the right consolidated itself, you know, the alt-right, I should say, after Charlottesville, I mean, it's just like, you know, getting back into the discussion about monuments, you know, those monuments represent power and identity, you know, or, or I should say represent identity, which is part of the power um, and the strength of that, those narratives. Um, and so, yeah, they're the threat that um, consolidated those forces in the alt-right and the way that they were emboldened, obviously legitimized by like a, an, a demagogue, you know, demagogue actor, like Trump, you know, um, neo-fascist, uh, narcissist, um, you know, is, is, is part of that. And so to me, it's just like, that was, if that wasn't a fucking wake up call, you know, to, to address and, 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 and see what, where things are going. And I think this is an important key time, you know, like, cause I, I'm a cheerleader for settler and settler violence. So if we ever talk, anybody talks about like the capital, you know, um, siege uh, that that happened on the sixth of January. To me, I'm just like, yeah. And this is, you know, you can look to the statement that Indigenous Action Post regarding this. Um, uh, you know, we see this as a potential strategy, you know, strategic opportunity, you know, um, for our enemies to um, 
uh, eat themselves, consume themselves from within. I mean, this, this is a history, a trajectory of empires. Um, but the point I want to get to real quick about security cultures, like if folks aren't studying how the right is being the alt-right and, you know, the Oath Keepers and the range of other fascists that were there, Proud Boys and so forth, how, if we're not studying how they're being targeted and, and disturbingly, there's a lot of people on, on the, the left, um, I use air quotes there, sorry, you couldn't see that, um, that were like excited about the way and they're sort of fascinated with the way that the FBI is going after and in some ways like encouraging or celebrating the FBI going after like people on the right. It's like, fuck, we should be studying how the FBI is going after them and recognizing that there are lessons to be learned in relation yeah. to like the response of the state. And what it, you know, like obviously the opportunities are different and this is what, you know, like this sort of equivalency question comes into play where it's just like, everybody's like, well, at Standing Rock, you know, like they did this and had, you know, for Black Lives Matters, they did this. And if this was black and brown people, this would never have been permitted. It's like, yeah, we fucking get it. You know, that, that's what the system is, is created for. That You're stating the obvious, you know, it's just like, this is self-inflicted harm. So this is different. You know, this is their boys patting each other on the back and the permissibility of, of white supremacy regarding these these tactics and why Charlottesville was such a powerful moment uh, for their momentum. Um, but also like, I think like something that we need to acknowledge and, 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 and recognize ourselves is like how powerful the response of anti-fascist um, mobilizing and organizing has been and how that sort of like those tensions are going to continue um, and enhance to the point where you know, if we aren't prepared, if we're like at that point where we're like, oh, you know, shit's going to get worse. But I mean, we should have been talking about how shit was getting worse way back then, you know, even more, more so um, than now, then, you know, and we didn't read the writing on the wall at those points, then, um, you know, I don't know what to say, except for link up with folks who are organized and who have been preparing. Um, you know, a lot of these, like, and I don't want to like, psychoanalyze like all the folks who were part of that siege on the Capitol too much. But I mean, a lot of these folks are like, you know, fascinated with prepper culture and, and, mm -hmm. and part of like that doomsday cult of like QAnon, which, you know, if we look at like these interesting cycles of like, you know, the, 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 the Christian, the foundation of Christian civilization in relation to revelations, not getting too like theological here, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, but uh you know, this death urge of this civilization has been that its logical conclusion is the apocalyptic. Um, so there's a lot of folks who have been ushering that on. They don't give a shit about how much they fuck up this world because at the end of it, their savior is going to come. Um, and that's what matters most to them. So ideologically, um, that death cult isn't an anomaly or an exception. It's actually part of the foundation of the civilization. So QAnon just, you know, pulls out the exciting sort of like, you know, stimuli that that is part of what's embedded in this sick social order. Um, and to me, that's what I, I'm more interested in that. Like there's so, so many people on, 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 on the left, like a lot of anarchists, like a lot of radical folks were just really, you know, excited to talk about like the contrasts, you know, contradictions of like what happened on the sixth, you know, and, and it, to me, it felt like we we're like, you know, it's, it's interesting to like feel, you know, that sort of comfortable analysis that would be easily, you know, published on NPR, or like, you know, common dreams. And like, how can we dig deeper and look at like, the reality of what we're facing here as what it is like colonization is war. 
that's not hyperbole. Like if we're not thinking, organizing, and preparing ourselves on those terms, then we are betraying ourselves. We're mm -hmm. betraying our future. And the logical conclusion, you know, of, of, of that assertion, you know, is, is that we have to be prepared for that conflict um, on many levels. And that's what, you know, I, I think is, is, is part of, you know, what I, I, I guess I'm frustrated personally with, and maybe we share, obviously we share these frustrations, is that there's an interesting maintenance of the normalcy of Americanism mm -hmm. that people want to tend to, um, even on the left. Um, and that to me is just not at all a pastime that I'm interested in engaging in or an exercise. Um, you know, I'm excited to watch, you know, this, this sort of the laying bare of the fear, vulnerability and anxiety of this empire consuming itself. You know, something that we, we wrote at the end of the piece, um, uh, pouring gasoline on the fire in response to the, the, the six is, is that, um, you know, uh, this is an anti-colonial or perhaps, you know, these compounding of crisis can be an anti-colonial tactical opportunity to precipitate um, uh, uh, instability while simultaneously building, stabilizing, proliferating, scaled collective efforts towards healthy and just communities. Um, and we ended it by saying like, this is a strategy of runes, which is the natural trajectory of empires, but there's a tendency towards ash for those who play with fire. And although the flames engulfing this empire were not set by our hands. We'll be pouring more gasoline and fanning these flames. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> That's, and it's, it's not hyperbole. It's understanding and, and recognizing our roles and responsibilities in this. And that, you know, it's, it's not some fucking, you know, punk rock patch that we're going to wear. <laughs> yes, my... It's a Halloween or it's a Valentine's candy that you're going to print. Yeah, and sell on Etsy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Um, I mean, I, like, yeah, I mean, the thing that really concerned me about the reactions in the six is just like, it, it really solidified throughout all this electoral bullshit and everything like that, how much like, how much we saw the veneer of white supremacy just completely wash away. And like, there was no question about it. Like the, the, the historic things that we were watching happening, like all throughout last year, it really laid everything bare and then seeing so many people acting like, well, I can't believe for the life of me that somebody who stole Pelosi's hard drive is just going to be like released to their mom's house. It's like, why? It's like, like, why, it's like why that's what the system's it? for. <laughs> like, yeah, that's like, how it works. <laughs> you, you didn't, you didn't even like get, take a note about anything that was going on last year. And it just shows how much, sorry. I mean, the thing that could, like, that really concerns me is seeing, how many people still feel that they don't have skin in the game? And I mean, it's just, it hasn't been an option for a lot of people for a long time. And it's just like seeing the potential that could be there and especially the kind of potential that should be there for being somebody who's been, you know, actively shouting about civilization for 20 something years. Like, <laughs> you know, when you get people who are marching the street as being called fascists and they're calling themselves Western chauvinists and arguing for civilization, then we should be able to be like, yeah, fucking told you so. And I mean, like, there's been actions like, I mean, these things have been building for some time, like the the anti-pipeline indigenous resistance movements or um, these these things that have been going on for some time that have like, I mean, they're amazing. Um, like, 
these are also the kind of issues like the, the, the left trying to find ways to absorb. But for, you know, since, you know, going back to the 60s, going back to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and 2000s, and all this shit, like the left has been radically anti indigenous in a lot of ways. And like their defense of industrialism will always come before, um, you know, any realistic understanding about about what it means to assault a community and they come by these NGO kind of bullshit political terms about trying to improve the conditions for everybody and blah, blah, all this bullshit. Um, but I think that like the potential is there to see so many things put in one perspective and one perspective and to see that the veneer of white supremacy had gone so far and the, 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 the amping up of civilization and these very clear, strict, frontier kind of like direct hyper direct hyper vigilant hyper literal ways um to see that that's all on display and see how much that wasn't sinking in it's like how do you get and like the perspective of coming up with some of these things that we've been building up to is like how do we get people to like to realize what's at stake and i mean there's practical levels of it you're talking about like with the green scare and it's like i can't emphasize this enough it's like the green scare was an intense time um it's like the reason you saw a lot of the publications like the green anarchy and green anarchy species trader and things like that like things die off is because like even outside of the fact that so many people were locked up and there are still people in prison marius in particular um was because it was like actually down to the point of like if we had sent a publication to the printer by the time it got back the things that hadn't been provocations were now provocations mm-hmm. and like the, the grounds were shifting that much at that time. Um, and I, I think a lot of that stuff gets missed. And I think a lot of that I could go on at length about it. I'll try not to, um, had to do with some bullshit things. Like, um, I'm still pissed about the film when a tree falls. Um, I think that one, it was made by a snitch defender and he invited snitches out to the screenings and things like that. But the whole thing didn't be the conversation about the green scare from a lot of practical perspectives and a lot of practical lessons that should have been learned and passed on, but from the historic the historicization of the green scare and being like, well, this was a thing that happened, and that's why like you know we can bring snitches out uh, informants out to the showings and not feel any kind of contradiction about it. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of ways in which those of us were around at the time you know, kind of let some of those things pass. And I don't think we should have. And I, I've been outspoken about it since the time. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think that that's part of the reason why it's like kind of shouting and like people, I think from our generation um, and from coming from this anarchist background, coming from the radical background, the way that we have, like a lot of the conversations have had, a lot of the approaches we've had are really being lost in social media and really being lost in all these ways of communicating these ways of transmitting information. And the danger of it really is, is that this hyper reliance on getting all of your information from the internet or from social media is not going to bode well as like anarchists and radicals are being thrown off and deplatformed in all these ways. And also just like transmitting actual information or getting something that has meaning and something that has reality behind it and weight and levity behind it. Um, when people are really just like, I'm going to jump down on this meme and break everything down into like read marks or read Stern or read some whatever. And just getting fixated on this, like really topical level without actually getting any of the depth behind it. And, 
Um, I mean, it's part of me is just like feeling like a grumpier older man now. Um, <laughs> and there's unequivocal truth to it. Uh, but it is also a genuine concern. It's like, there is so much promise here and we will never know. I mean, every civilization, like the end of every empire is hubris. It's like the thing it didn't see coming to be the last thing. That's the thing that's going to push it over. You don't know what it's going to be. We just know that all the conditions are there that this can't sustain itself. We know this can't sustain itself. It's, it's at the end of this road, like the linear line of history is there, but we, you asked the question about like, how do we get people to understand what's at stake? And I'm, I'm curious as to like, and then, and then, you know, proceeded um, to sort of um, elaborate a bit and share, you know, like your concerns regarding that. Um, yeah, I'm curious as to like what you mean by people and like, you know, <laughs> what, what would be the threshold then to convince people, you know, like what you, what you see by that? Cause there's, there's an interesting you know, proposition or expectation there. That's, it's pretty loaded when we ask a question like that. That's why I'm curious. Um, I mean, it's generally, I mean, I'm speaking as a, as a white dude. I mean, there's like no question about it. I mean, I, when I say we, in a lot of these cases, I, I often mean like other white anarchists, um, people coming from that perspective, but like, you know, there's a lot and I mean, it sucks to even say that's it. kind of gross to say it, but like a lot I'm speaking to about like the white experience of like how how do you how do you approach that that topic? How do you how do you breach that whiteness and that allegiance to this white supremacist system and this this civilized death march in a way that gets like what what's the thing that kind of like cracks so that that the narrative can break of civilization. The idea that like this whole linear notion of progress and the world building towards this point and it ends in apocalypse and all this stuff. And that there's like one timeline, there's one path, there's no alternatives. Um, you know, I mean, I guess in, in a way it's a generalized we, but that generalized we is loaded. And I don't, I'm not trying to cover for that fact. Um, you know, there's a lot of things you don't have to explain to people about the nature of the society if the conditions and the, the realities of it are, are tiered as they are to um, hierarchy institutions and systemized oppression the way that it is. Um, well, I think, I mean, the reason I asked that is because I think like, you know, groups like Deep Green Resistance asked and answered that question quite a bit. So, you know, I wasn't sure where you were going. Deep green resistance. <laughs> what are you well, doing? I, I, what are you I, just I, open? You know, I, I bring it up <laughs> to some serious study because I, I think, like, you know, we're, we're we're talking about practical responses in relation to addressing that question. You know, um, how do you get people to know what's at stake, or is that the right question? You know, to be asking, I guess, is maybe more or less um, the way to reapproach it. Um, actually, Clay, I'm curious in like what, what, how, like what question, how would you phrase that question or is it, do you feel it's not a relevant question? Um, like I'm what? interested in your question, in your questions in a way, right? Like, like what question, what questions are, what questions are you asking? Like what's the foremost question? But I'm going to interject. Nothing I'm talking about is about anything to do with green resistance. <laughs> 
Put, not, an, put, no an, asterisk no put an asterisk on it. Yeah, I'm not trying to get cannon fodder. I'm trying. Anyways, sorry. <laughs> you you would we'll, we'll just take a moment to say fuck deep green resistance and then move on. Is right. that okay? I think we can. Do you feel good about that? <laughs> well. <laughs> Do you need why? No, just fuck deep green resistance. Why coming later? You know that's it. I think I've I think I've said enough enough places, and if people okay. are not familiar, I've written about it, so I didn't have to go through it every time. <laughs> okay, sorry, I, I touched a nerve, like you said. Uh, hot button, hot button. You did. You found it. You uncovered an old <laughs> nerve, and you're just like, what about that one? <laughs> well, I, I brought it up because we're talking you know, about a question that, um, you know, it, it's a project of a lot of people on the left to figure out the best way forward. And a lot of people call it revolution or liberation, you know, things like that. And that's, I guess, sort of like the tendency of these conversations that, you know, the, the urge of these conversations. Um, and to, to, to get maybe as a way to get into, um, you know, the question of how I would or what is you know the the approach to that question um you know we're talking about um this and i think it's an important component of the question we're talking about what we're faced with you know with um extreme state repression looming more um so on the horizon with the biden administration um something that many people are sort of like you know connecting and I, you know, I, I brought up the Green Scare as one example, but of course we could talk about the Patriot Act and post 9-11 response in relation to state repression, the extreme targeting of Muslims and so forth. Mm -hmm. And we could talk about you know, a range of other communities that have been systematically targeted after certain you know, um, actions in the way that those um, Im impacts have been felt, you know, of course, and absorbed in many ways. Um, by the left, quote unquote, um, as well. So there's the dynamic of what we're facing as far as the response from our enemies. Um, and there's, you know, two fronts of these enemies. One, it's like, you know, socially with the fascist threats and um, two with the state that is part of that threat. But it seems to be like, you know, something that we've always been facing, right? Street battles against the NSM, you know, um, and, you know, the other like cosplayers that always tried to find legitimacy and now have found it. Um, you know, anti-fascists have been sounding the alarm for such a long time. And it's interesting the way that people are, and I, maybe I'll use this as an example to get to like a response to this, this question. Um, uh, but, you know, anti-fascists have been out there for a long time saying, like, no platform for these folks. We can't even lead a, lead a, lead a march in the fucking street. And then obviously them being shielded by free speech and a range of other defenders. Um, you know, this is, oh, these, you know, the crazies will just fight the crazies and they'll go away. It's sort of like, you know, an approach that I've, you know, heard before. But they didn't. And this is what they've become. This is what, you know, they were hoping for. And this moment, you know, I think, part of the concern and I don't want to be too flippant about, you know, the January 6th siege, the capital is, is that it historically is a marker for them and will embolden them on different levels for their, what is possible. Just like we would seize on that if J20 of flat, you know, four years ago, you know, 
Um, you know, it's like the J20 burning limousine, <laughs> you know, a lot of people seized on that, made memes of it, celebrated it and saw what was possible, you know, on different levels. Um, and I think like those moments are important in certain movements and we shouldn't dismiss, you know, an analysis and appreciate the potential for understanding what those mean culturally for these groups. And I think that that's important. Um, the point I'm getting at with anti-fascism um, is, is that, uh, yeah, I think like there's a certain tendency towards um, anti-fascist organizing. I think that needs to be clearly addressed. And that is just that anti-fascist, one can be pro-colonial and anti-fascist. <laughs> you know, there, there are certain things that we need to understand in relation to these politics. And this gets back into sort of like the, perhaps a necessity of like sort of um, the identifying and certain affinities with these politics, then moving from there, it's like this is what our intentions are. Um, this is the way that you know, we're going to either work together or not with each other. Um, and I think it's important to, uh, and I, I guess I, I, I have been called, um, for better or worse, at times a process junkie, but I'm also very fascinated in organizing and very fascinated with um, strategy and tactics. I, I, it's not that I don't think everything should be... Uh, um, it's not that I think that everything should be strategic. It should just be thought through. So I'm really interested in the logic behind the strategies, the logic behind the tactics. So what are we, you know, um, concerning ourselves with in our, regards to our analyses? How are we learning from these conditions, the situations, experiences, and how are we growing? How are we moving forward to be more effective? And I think that that's, the real question that we should be asking is how can we be fucking effective at stopping these things from happening at intervening and disrupting and bringing shit down? How can we be effective? Like how can, what is the outcome that we want? Not just the outputs. And I think a lot of like organ, you know, activists speak, I guess, jargon and organizers look, try to look at that. It's just like, how do we, you know, um, measure outcomes and, you know, sometimes we confuse outcomes with outputs like that. We just want all these people to be convinced of a certain thing and everybody marching in the street. And there we go. It's the same like logic that is like, if we just get a million people signing this petition, everything will change. If we get everybody holding hands in prayer for this one thing, it will change. And I, I think like basically the approach to me is this like thinking about efficacy from a holistic and intersectional point. Um, and I was using a lot of terms like jargon, um, but to break that down is just to be very thoughtful, very mm -hmm. intentional um, about what we can do that um, will achieve the outcomes that we want as effectively as possible. And, um, you know, looking at just strategic opportunities, and that's why that piece like, you know, um, Settler and, you know, the strategic opportunity of Settler and Settler violence, pretty much is that title just sort of says it all. <laughs> um, it's like, you know, what can we study about this moment? What ways can we help, you know, bring it forward? And that's why I like radicalism being the politics of possibilities. It's just like, you know, the, we, we look at these, these small opportunities um, and how can we make them grow? Um, how can we stabilize and proliferate that and fuck shit up, you know, in simple terms, 
um, you know, if our objective is to bring down Western civilization, which I am extraordinarily enthusiastic about. As are we, as um, are we. It's our then, 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 then what are the questions that we can ask that can help us arrive to that point? Um, and asking those questions, not just theoretically, getting back to what we're saying, but very practically. And that's why I brought up Deep Green Resistance, because they really brought some people together to really think about it. And they did. And they put out a big fucking book that, <laughs> like, oh, my fucking gosh. It's like, you know, I, I mean, to, to read that book is, you know, yeah, it's, it, takes, <laughs> it take, took a lot, um, you know, and um, uh you know, not much to salvage except for the fact that they tried. <laughs> um, and so, to me, credit than I do. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, yeah, I'm being polite. Sorry. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes that's part of my disposition. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 to look at the ways that we've tried to work um, on these problems and find those most effective solutions. And I know it's simplistic. Like that's why I said before, it's just like at the risk of being reductive. I'm gonna put these things in these terms because I think it is important to sometimes take a step back out of this mess you know these deep deep messes that we're in and appreciate sometimes the simple architecture that the system has built upon itself mm-hmm. or built itself upon um, and and like these ideas of history sometimes be, be, become so um, mon- monolithic monumental I guess in a way that like we forget how much, you know, like power there is in just eroding these pieces of concrete and steel and how easy they fall apart mm-hmm. and, and how many, how easy it is to build things from those ruins mm-hmm. and, and scraps that are much more useful and interesting, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I mean, my own perspective of it is that like I've been approaching it. It's like one of the things coming from like the our kind of discussions we were having in Green Anarchy and Green Anarchist eco anarchist dandy sim stuff in the mid two thousands is arguing with like uh, douchebags like Wolfie, um, who is like, you know, we have like they had this I don't know, I'm not gonna go into it, but like had this whole like egoist thing, but at the same time this weird allegiance to all these leftist things, even though it was really going after leftism in name, but refusing to give up on the leftist institutions of revolution. And I, for me, that was a big deal. I was like studying a lot of like indigenous resistance because I think indigenous resistance and anti-colonial resistance has always really understood the weakness of the colonizers, the cord that tethers them to the, to the empire. Um, and understanding that being um, extractivist in nature um, really changes the relationship with land, changes the relationship with everything. And like the source of power um that's you know that's where the hubris comes from that's why i'm focusing on the all empires die of hubris like the idea that they can present themselves as something powerful when they're desperate and um you know it's like understand it's like well, why is the, why the nature of revolutionary violence or revolutions so innately different from so much about indigenous resistance and it's like well you can kill for an idea or you can kill for an ideal and a lot of people have fucking died for it but like it's still that kind of that not kind of it's still entirely that western notion of like this disintegrated world and um you know you get you get this really dogmatic kind of approach and you can end up with people like kaczynski who's like hyper focused on like take on technology 
not discussing anything else. And the degree which she tried to get that focus ended up being like crazy anti-indigenous um, and like against egalitarianism and all these things, like just went this total all right kind of angle. Yeah, ship of fools, it's clear. Yeah, it's not good. Um, so, I mean, I think it's like, there's there's been no question, I think for a long time in understanding the nature of civilization and the nature of targeting civilization um, in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of discussions that are good there and a lot of discussions that can't be had as discussions. Um, so, I mean, really like kind of the question becomes like, if, if we want to amplify the impact of, uh, of those potential actions or of these things happening or of the ways in which like the system's cracking and falling apart. And Sasha's always like pointed out like how hubristic it is that civilization has really just scattered all the things it takes to sustain it out in the open on the periphery. Mm-hmm. Like, is that some really cool approaches about that? Mm-hmm. More to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, like, I, there's there's a lot there, and there's a lot to be said about it. But it's really just like it's not about building an ideology. It's not about trying to build something people can resuscitate it or recite. Um, it's not trying to like build in any of these leftist structures. But you know, if you understand the narrative as itself, infrastructure are ways to try to erode it and try to kind of crack beyond this call and response sort of thing and like not hand things to people, not make them automatons, but like open up the reality of being autonomous and making decisions on your own and being able to draw your own conclusions while the cracks are everywhere else in empire. Um, And I, I think that like that, there's no question, like I'm, I'm not interested in, you know, like a lot of lessons I think we had had over the past 20 years in the anti-civil world, um, drawing more on the ultra left than even the post left, but like critiques of organization, critiques of uh, activism, critiques of the marches and things like that. And, you know, there's a lot about that that can kind of come into play uh, to even discuss what we've seen with the George Floyd uprisings and everything like that. And it's probably a different conversation, but um, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said and a lot of openings that are happening. And I mean, the, the goal here that I have in these kind of conversations isn't like, how do we breed towards that liberatory, this liberation revolution perspective, but how do we break out of that and show that like, there is stake in the system there, or there's, there's stake in, in what is happening. There's stakes in the ways that this is falling apart. There's a lot that we're seeing about the inevitability of civilization's collapse and that process as it is unfolding. And like, you know, how do we add more fuel to the fire because the potential is unquestionably there and like anything at this point can light it off and and some of the things that are happening um you know when we're talking about anti-extractivist uh actions anti-extractivist movements the pipeline blockades and things like that that's fucking awesome i mean that's a that's a huge thing and that's something that that within the resistance the trajectories of resistance civilization that's that's a long-standing target that's a long-standing thing to go after and i think it's giving the chance to have different discussions and to open up other possibilities so like you know this is the stuff that's kind of like well how do we how do we amplify what's happening here like how do we amplify this in a way that gives more potential for more people to want to put more pressure on more of the cracks not is amplification like the right action or activity like 
too, I think that's why I like as bringing up strategies and tactics, it's like strategies are like, you know, we sort of set, you know, what our goals are, our actions are like, you know, or our t- tactics are actions to accomplish those goals and just being clear on like, you know, that to me, I, I think it's, it's important. Um, but I, I want to caution you about like sort of overgeneralizing or risking, you know, cause you risked overgeneralizing indigenous resistance too. Cause I think, you know, indigenous resistance also isn't a monolith. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's complicated and messy and there's a lot of nonprofits that have like high visibility that just have really shitty politics in my opinion. So just cause you were saying like you draw a lot on indigenous resistance in, in, in contrast to like some of the other shit. Um, because I, I think it's important for folks, you know, who might not be as familiar with those analyses to at least recognize as well. Um, and then uh, I think like just, you know, where things are going with this, you know, conversation, um, I think it's important to like, maybe just clarify and bring it back to what I was talking about earlier um, with, you know, what the question is, what we're focusing on, what our outcomes are, because it's important to me in like in analyzing indigenous resistance movements right now, um, like what, and this is something that was articulated by Glenn Coltard in a, a interesting book called Redskins White Mask, which you know, of course, of course, is inspired by and sort of a response or extension of like Lockskin White Mask by Franz Fanon. Um, but uh, the um, the thing that was very useful from uh, Coltard in that book was making a distinction between the politics of recognition, the politics of liberation. And I think at the beginning of the opening for this conversation that we had, you had mentioned something about that, like talking about the politics of sort of recognition. Um, I think you use different terms. Um, yeah, representation. And to me, it's just like, that's the thing. It's just like, if we, you know, let's clarify what our, you know, outcomes are. So we're asking the right questions about what to do um, with these, you know, facing these issues. And to me, it's just like a lot of people are just, you know, the outcome is just like, they want to, have a seat at the table with the colonizers, you know, they're, 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 mm-hmm. they're, the, the questions that they're asking themselves are how to get there and how to have that, the most visibility, you know, how to take down those things that, you know, are eroding at indigenous identity so they can, you know, have that sort of equal footing um, with the colonizers, you know, and, and to me, that's, that's insufficient. It's, 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 and part of what I, you know, agitate against, um, and, and I'm much more interested in, in those other terms. Like, I, I don't like the term revolution or revolutionary. I, I think, you know, you, you know, I'm sure we probably share the same um, analysis, you know, to a degree, because revolution implies, you know, a transition of power and replacing one power with another. Mm-hmm. I'm interest, interested in the act of, of revolt and rebellion, but not necessarily revolution in those terms, at least historically is how it's been defined and what it's meant. You know, I'm, I'm much more interested in liberation and the point I'm getting at is just like in this sort of like, you know, and I don't like to call it the politics of liberation. I think that's just one category that assigned just so it helps to like clarify things for folks uh, in contrast mainly. Um, but, you know, towards, um, uh, you know, autonomy, towards, um, you know, uh, freedom, um, uh that's, I think, what I'm, I'm more interested in. I think, like, if we sort of orient ourselves towards those outcomes and ask those questions that sort of line up with, like, the strategies that 
move us there and and it'll it'll clarify our tactics so we're not just like you know going through these sort of like what ultimately become like decolonization became for the most part has become this word that people have said so much that it just means nothing it's a, a lifestyle mm-hmm. you know at this point um you know a, a placeholder word for anything decolonize like as i mentioned before like decolonizing anarchism decolonizing anthropology decolonizing um there's even a book out there called decolonizing um philanthropy i think it's no decolonizing wealth is what the book's called and the whole and and no there's a movement right now in indigenous nonprofits to 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 embrace this work decolonizing wealth and they're using it to like basically leverage um philanthropists to give money towards these nonprofits is fucking you know indigenous nonprofits and it's fucking sick because it's just like this weird like sort of like pseudo reparations like facade um where these nonprofits are just cashing cashing in on settler guilt um and i i, I so uh, sorry that's a, that's a bit of a tangent you know but it's an example um of that trajectory and people asking questions and just sort of fitting them in these terms um but you know and i i wanted you know, also pull it back into, and I think that's like the most, you know, interesting and useful, like, I guess, like way that's been addressed for me personally, because, you know, I like, yeah, we could talk about anarcho or egoists, um, anarcho-individualists or whatever, or that, you know, in in a range of these other tendencies. And um, I think there's some interesting things that people have like put out there, um, and, and it's it's fascinating and useful for folks. You know, if it works for them, like okay, that's where you're going. Um, but I think like the rethinking the apocalypse piece, like had an interesting um, tone, I guess, if anything, that provided a really interesting contrast. That um, you know, perhaps I I could read something for or just direct the listeners here to read if you haven't already, um, because I, I think there are elements that um you know just sort of like we're rejecting the dead future and the anti-futurist you know sort of urge um uh was addressing this apocalyptic idealization um which is a self-fulfilling prophecy as far as like part of the prescription um and in the piece they identified that it's really their linear worlds ending from within um and talking you know it talks about the apocalyptic logic and understanding these you know how it functions um and cannibalizes itself um and so like without getting into like the you know because i I think everybody wants a prescription sometimes (laughs) we see all the problems we live the fucking problems Mm -hmm. you know it's like you know and everybody's always looking for prescription out of something or another and there's a lot of like um uh, charlatans willing to sell you whatever they can um you know it's like the, the snake oils of the day um or the snake oils of today are a range of like adju- you know politics full of lots of adjectives in the left and um uh the point that i was getting at is this piece um which sort of like this conversation brought up is it's like uh, it states like as indigenous anti-futurists, we're the consequence of the history of the colonizer's future. Um, we're the consequence of their war against Mother Earth. And we will not allow the specter of the colonizer, the ghosts of the past, to haunt the ruins of this world. We're the actualization of our prophecies. 
This is the reemergence of the world of cycles. This is our ceremony between silent skies, the world breathes again, and the fever subsides. The land is quiet, waiting for us to listen. Where th when there are less distractions, we go to the place where our ancestors emerged, and there slash our voice. There's a song older than words here. It heals deeper than the colonizer's blade could ever cut. And there, our voice, we were always healers. This is the first medicine. Um, and, I, and, and it goes on, but um, why? Well, I, I guess I should go on then. Um, colonialism on, is a plague. Capitalism is a, is pandemic. These systems are anti-life. Um, they will never. They will not be compelled to cure themselves. We will not allow these corrupted, sickened systems to recuperate. We'll spread. I mean, I, the reason I initially wanted to leave that out is because that's like the sort of like punctuation is in. In I don't think the first part needed to be punctuated at all. <laughs> mm. um, uh, in the addendum is most interesting. Um, because it it talks about how their future was achieved um and the past of this colonial order and I, I think that that's an interesting way to like flip how we view time um and is part of that like process of unmapping you know like like untangling the way that our geographies have been colonized it's like an anti-cartography if you will mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. to disentangle ourselves from these weird relationships like this is something i was thinking about recently too regarding like um a lot of like the reaction from the the, the hard left i guess um and, and anarchists like you know looking at like sort of what crime thing and a range of other folks out there they, they still are sort of like po posing um the response or the um uh, the way that we should you know folks should consolidate to defend themselves um and, and, and react after what we can anticipate is going to be a long-term state response to um i would say like the post-trump regime that was punctuated by january 6th um, because this is an escalation in, 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 in um, the response from the Biden administration and, and a range of other neoliberal actors. Um, the, the question that they keep asking, the way that they're bringing up the responses is, is like this national question. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it, it, it's, it's like this sort of like collective imagination that is still defined by the fantasy of utopia that upholds the colonial project of america like and i and 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 there it's it, it's really implicit in a lot of the leftist anti-authoritarian questions regarding this issue and i guess it's an to me what really turns me off of it and i, I don't want to say this very you know too irresponsibly mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, but it, it feels like a circling of ideological wagons that's happening on the left, which is still the same colonial tactics. Oh, that yeah. I Definitely. have extraordinary disdain for. Mm -hmm. And I'm more interested in burning those fucking wagons to the ground. <laughs> um, yeah. And I'm, and it, I'm not just saying it to be an agitator of the left and, 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 and 
stake a position of being edgy as edgy as possible. It's just a basic anti-colonial sensibility <laughs> that if you know folks are interested in, in in doing maintenance to you know their you know place in this social order as part of the response to this order you know um, this order hemorrhaging um, you know it's 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 not a space like I'd rather. Um, and this was something that was written in the gasoline on the fire point. It's, you know, it's, it's hemorrhaging, it's bleeding. Well, let's drive that knife in deeper. Mm -hmm. Let it bleed. Yeah. I mean, we did notice that the events in Washington on the 6th, I mean, the left benefited from those actions as much as the right did. They, the left loves to be self-righteous and the left ended up looking like here is like, we were really kind of giggling about the images of the interns or whatever carrying the votes through the halls and just this like real tendency for that the whole mess to benefit from the publicity of all the things that happened there and yeah absolutely i mean there's no there there's no there's no side of politics right now that is uh, uh more noble than the other i think the whole idea is like you said burn the wagons <laughs> yeah and i think that provoking the left is is necessary i mean that, that's the whole like with communism and socialism being on the rise again and stuff like that it's like the the nearsightedness of that is is insane that same kind of frontier ideology and like um unilateral uh ideas of linear progress and everything like that i mean they're no less baked in i mean they're, in fact they're more in fact marx mm -hmm. you know when you're talking about the marxist shit like colonialism preconditioned for socialism like all these things are preconditions it's like this total linear direction and i mean it's apocalyptic in its own regard uh but the realities of it are a different kind of apocalypse and that's the one we're more concerned with um but i do agree i mean i think being really careful about the terms and you know i i do say it's important to err on the side of complexity and have more complexity in our narratives so i mean like i'm you know the idea that like there's no indigenous entity this that's for absolute unquestionably positives and i and after the conversation we had before like i think focusing more on like uh anti-colonial and specifically is is its own thing and i think that's really important um but yeah i mean i think that that these are agitations that need to happen and that's why it's like i think it's more important to keep drawing out like you know keep drawing out that the the shit away from leftism keep drawing it out to say it's like there's an alternative to this narrative of everything being on the political spectrum and everything being answered by a left right um, like paradigm. Um, but yeah. Um, I do just want to say like, you know, I, like, I think this is a really good conversation. I hope that we're able to have a lot more of them. Um, like we're probably ought to wrap up this one. Right towards yeah. I don't know what time it is. <laughs> We'd, we had set some kind of, Thank you for reading from that piece too, Clay. And then do you want to give the link for that or how do people read more of that? Uh, just check out indigenousaction.org um, mm -hmm. or uh, yeah, whatever device that you receive things on. <laughs> do you have any, um, any thoughts that we didn't cover that you feel like you'd really like to get across tonight? Um, 
I, I you know, I, I like to think of this as just an ongoing conversation. Um, you know, I don't claim to, you know, I haven't, I, I speak to my experiences and my teachings. Um, I feel like there's a lot of like excitement in raw, open conversations where we take risks. So I appreciate, you know, that y'all, um, you know, offer that space here with your show. Um, I like to dig deep um, and be provocative and appreciate that y'all share that spirit. So I just want to encourage people out there who are listening to this um, to, you know, cultivate those spaces in your life as well. Um, but I, I, and I, and I think there are like very practical elements um, of what we're talking about and some of the ways that, you know, folks are organizing um, on different levels um, that are very important to continue. I don't want to be dismissive um, of, of some of those projects, um, but I think like being, you know, having that critical analysis and, and um, building settler consciousness and tearing that consciousness down is a very important project. Um, I would say that that's one of the more important important projects that isn't necessarily about decolonizing settler identity, but it's actually um, reconnecting in a way that helps to understand what your roles are, even if you don't have ancestor traditions that you can connect to, that you feel good about, that mm. have any useful teachings, mm -hmm. then perhaps your role has shifted into the role where you help to be part of the dismantling you know of mm -hmm. that narrative and mm -hmm. end that narrative because certain narratives don't need to be tended to they need to be brought to their rightful end um and i and i think that that's something where i've always appreciated the analysis coming out of the anti-civ movements um and spaces regardless of who's writing them and i don't i could name a whole bunch of names here and you'd probably like you'd be uncomfortable with 90 percent of them of, of folks that I've, <laughs> I've, I've listened to talk to or worked with on different levels um uh but the 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 spirit the attitude um uh the perspectives and in the serious concern regarding what to do with the question of civilization and, and getting to that sort of like understanding of that as a, a real strong root cause or primary contradiction to use certain jargon um, is important to understand. Um, Cause that's something that I always come back to and listening to what my elders teach and what they say. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think, I think it's easy for certain folks on the left and other spaces to dismiss an anti-civ critique just as being extreme, you know, too extreme, or, you know, like they just want to take everything down. It's just like, yes, we're talking, we're, you know, we should concern ourselves about the ending of worlds. One, because we as indigenous people have experienced that in our history, mm. and perhaps we are witnessing and part of that um, at this point, you know, this is, a, a, it's always a time of prophecy, um, and we should be keen on paying attention to that in many different ways. And I think that these conversations are important on those terms. Um, and so I appreciate that analysis and the spirit and energy, as I mentioned, um, without using too many new age terms. <laughs> um, but, but I also don't want to 
you know, placate um, the anti-civ movement because I think there's a lot to come to terms with, a lot of responsibility regarding co-optation, regarding, um, uh, uh, you know, really shitty practices of um, appropriation and mm -hmm. essentialization, you know, and just, you know, like, especially with the tendency of like the, um, uh, the, the um, anarcho-traditionalists and like you, you could see like a tendency towards white supremacy that, you know, has really taken hold in certain spaces. And, um, you know, I don't, so I don't want to leave anti-civ folks off the hook with like, you know, those analysis, but I think there's important things to, to really dig into um, and build with those understandings and then um, to remind ourselves in these spaces, what roles we can have and what ways we can weaponize ourselves um, towards towards the ending of this um, this time. Yeah, I mean, Clee, you just have brought it back around so beautifully because I mean that is something we talk about a lot on here. Is like, well, coming from the colonizer culture is like where do we turn our attentions to and I think you've just really I mean that's a that's a beautiful place to leave it is maybe we turn our attentions to helping to end the narrative um you know of colonization and and the the grip that that has on everything like that's a beautiful place to sit that's an incredible place to turn our attention the narrative and its infrastructure yeah yeah, well, that's and that's part of it. Just like you said, with monuments, right? It's not just yeah. a monument that comes down. So the the, the this symbology, you know, the symbolism, um, it's important to attack that infrastructure as well. So, but yes, absolutely, infrastructure. We not we'd love to continue the conversation with you too. So, um, I mean, hopefully, you'd come back again and talk to us some more um i think you have no i'm uh, done after this <laughs> i quit <laughs> i quit um uh, i think you have an incredibly beautiful way of um you know telling the story of all of this and um you know your voice is just i mean we love we love talking to you <laughs> i appreciate it um and i appreciate the opportunity uh as well so thank you thank you thank you clay well, thank you for listening to the entire interview, and uh, I hope you got as much from it as we do, and we look forward to more conversations with Klee uh, and more from Indigenous Action and everybody else involved with it. Uh, to check out more episodes of our podcast, they're all at primalanarchy.org. They're also on all the major podcast platforms and everything like that. Uh, the earliest ones were under Black and Green Podcast, but they should still come up under the same. Uh, for more on our books and the projects that we're working on, there's blackandgreenpress.org. Um, we have a bunch of books on there uh, and different things like that. Uh, more on what I'm doing is kevintucker.org. More on what Natasha's doing, natashatucker.org. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll be doing uh, more episodes again. And again, another episode after this uh, to kind of catch up on, get things going again. Uh, so we do apologize about the delays. We apologize about all that, but we're happy to get this stuff out and getting it going. The world is a fucking mess right now, so... We got to get it going. All right. Till next time.